I want to start every single week with these two scriptures, though. Um, Acts 17, 30, and 31, the Apostle Paul, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So there's a day coming when everybody's going to be judged. The gospel is very, very, very important because people that don't respond to the gospel are going to be ultimately fall into judgment. So the day is coming. It's closer today than it was last Sunday. Only God knows when that is. And we need to be prepared to share the gospel like that guy did on the video today. And then the, the second scripture is what is the gospel? And this is the Apostle Paul again from Romans chapter 1. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So the gospel, the message, the gospel, the spoken gospel has the power of God unto salvation. It's a specific gospel. It's not a sloppy gospel that's kind of fuzzy around the edges. It's very specific. If it's added to, it's not the gospel that has the power to save. If it's subtracted from, it's not the gospel that has the power to save. Only the gospel has the power to save. I believe that the sharing of the gospel is best done in context, not just the specifics of the gospel, make a decision, yes and no, here's how you would respond if you want to be saved, but to give people context. I don't know that the context is necessary for them to get saved, but I do believe the context is really important because they're a if they respond, they're about to enter into a relationship with God. The same God that served Job up to Satan, the same God that washed the disciples' feet. And, and in order to have a relationship with God, you might as well get that understanding out at the beginning so that your relationship and your effectiveness and bringing forth the kingdom um, can be the very best it possibly can be. So I think context matters. The first order of context is God. The second order of context is man's relationship to God. That's the two that I've already preached. The next, kind of this one's mixed in there. The next one is to have some understanding of sin, rebellion, and separation from God. The next would be some conversation around grace and then around a savior and then ultimately around salvation. And what does that actually mean? What is salvation? It means more than that you've just not that this is a just, but that you've been eternally reconciled to God and then you can just go into coast mode until you actually meet him in heaven. It's more than that, but that's kind of the context and the fullness of the gospel. So um, first week, we talked about God. Second week, we talked about what's man's relationship to God. So I want to review that one just a little bit as we go into this one. Relationship with God is established under either of two legal systems, both of which require perfect righteousness to have eternal relationship with God. We see that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, these two legal systems. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So under the law of sin and death, the soul that sins must die. So sin brings about death, that's it. If you live under that law, you sin, you die, you're dead to God. Relationship under the law of sin and death is established by your perfect righteousness or your lack of it. 
If you are perfectly righteous, having never committed a sin in your life, then you can stand before God under the law of sin and death and have eternal relationship with him. We know that nobody does, so nobody will have an eternal relationship with God if they live in the legal system that is the law of sin and death because nobody's righteousness in and of themselves is perfect. The second legal system is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Relationship with God under that legal system is established by the imputed perfect righteousness of Jesus given to a person. And that's the only righteousness that will actually bring a person into an eternal relationship with God. So there's two legal systems. Relationship with God is based in one or the other, either the law of sin and death or um, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We talked last week about horizontal and vertical relationships and that a a horizontal relationship would be like, um, you know, me and Larry. We would be horizontally related. Those are governed by things like love your neighbor as yourself. Vertical relationships are governed differently. A vertical relationship would be like a relationship between me and my children. And one of the aspects of vertical relationships is love is demonstrated through obedience. So when you are in a vertical relationship with someone as a a son or a daughter or as a parent, then the way the son's or daughter's love to the parent is expressed part of the way is through obedience. That's the same way that God receives love from us. Is, is, is obedience. He doesn't say that your emotions demonstrate your love towards me. He says that your obedience demonstrates your love towards me. So if someone is in that relationship with God, it's a relationship of obedience. It was demonstrated in the garden with Adam and Eve, and Jesus affirmed that in, in the book of John in uh, chapter 14, verses 15, and then verse 24. and 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in 24, he says, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus very clearly indicates that if if you want to express love towards him, the way he receives it is that you be obedient to his word. So then in summary for last week, just some bullet points. A person in relationship with the God of the universe first understands that, that they are the creature, not the creator that this relationship is not a horizontal, it's not a peer relationship, it's a vertical relationship. By choosing his own way, mankind, they have chosen themselves as God and rejected God in that relational role. So, so that relationship was broken by that person by choosing themselves over God. That's what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve chose their own selves over God when he said, don't eat from the tree, the fruit of this one particular tree. So, as such, God has given them what they chose and the fruit or the consequences of their choice. See, it's important that we understand someone who's not saved, who has no relationship with God um, now or eternally, has to understand that when, when you see what the fruit of that is here in today's sermon, that God didn't do that, they did that. He's the creator, they were created. He established the parameters of relationship. They chose not to have relationship with him. Therefore, they've chosen these issues of life that are going to be theirs, and they're issues of eternal life. He didn't choose it. They chose it. People have to be accountable to their clean up their messes, right, Therese? Right, okay. Even though Jesus cleans up that mess for us, but we still there's a, there's a mechanism to have that put on us. Uh, their issue is not God's choosing, but theirs. I think I just said all this stuff. Um, God, on the other hand, chose to create man 
chose to be in a love relationship with man, provided everything necessary for that relationship to flourish, including the opportunity for it to fail. And the reason he did that is that love with or relationship with God is always going to be a love relationship, and love without choice can't be love. So there had to be the opportunity to not choose God in order for there to be a relationship with God that's based in love. Why is that context so important? It's because if someone is going to come into a relationship with the living God, they have to recognize not only what they've done, and we'll see, we'll see later what he's done in order to have that restored relationship in place. It's really important because, again, this is, a, this is a bad way to say it, but if you offer somebody Jesus cheap, less than you know, the fullness of the picture, what you often get is, is a cheap Christian. There's no devotion. There's no brokenness. There's no surrender. There's no contrition in their lives that would, that would cause them to be passionate and a, and a bright, shining light on behalf of the Lord if Jesus isn't understood the way he should be understood, if the Father isn't understood the way he should be understood. So it's important that people know this so that they can actually count the cost and make a good decision for Jesus. Okay, so... Um, going forward, there's uh, some assumptions and some understandings that, that, that are already in place as we speak today's message. The first is that we're having a conversation with somebody, right? We're sharing the gospel and we're sharing the context of the gospel. The first piece of kind of uh, assumption or understanding is the person we're talking to, we've already been to the point where he believes that there's a God, right? So, so that conversation about is there a God? Yes, I believe in God. Who is the God that you believe in? It's not Allah. It's not Buddha. It's not the Hindu gods. It's, it's the God that we see in the Christian and the Hebrew scriptures. You know, that's been established. Now, the second thing that's been established is they have an understanding, kind of a, a Job versus God uh, understanding that, that it's a vertical relationship, not a horizontal relationship. That's in place. And we need to remember that we've not yet presented them the gospel. So, so we're at the kind of, we're, we're plowing the hard ground right now, and they have not yet been presented the gospel, but we're getting there. Okay, so then today let's talk about what that lost relationship is. And one of my favorite places to share this is out of John, starting in verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 16, because that's like the most widely quoted verse, right? But there's more that comes after John 3, 16 and 17 that, that sheds a light on this. So let me read that for you. John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That's the beginning of the gospel. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He, believe, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So the point that I want to make from that set of scripture is the gospel starts with God sent his son. He sent his son so that the world might be saved. But see, anybody who hasn't yet placed their faith in Jesus isn't waiting to be judged. They're already judged. He didn't need to come and judge them. The judging has already happened. <laughs> I have a little why question in here. And why are they judged? And the answer is because their relationship with God is based in the law of sin and death. They've sinned. They've died to God. That's how they're seen. Okay, Hebrews 9.27 says, and in, as much as it, and in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. The reason why I wanted to share that scripture is 
while the unbelieving world is judged, they've not yet experienced judgment. Does that make sense? Right? It's like a, a, a person goes to court, you know, maybe they're Bernie Madoff or somebody, and, and they've been judged guilty, but they haven't been put in prison yet. There, there's a season right now that's, that's available to the world that's judged where they have not yet experienced judgment. But judgment is coming. That's the Acts scripture that I've been reading at the beginning of each of these messages. There's a time coming when God is going to bring about judgment. The world is already judged. You don't need to go and judge them. And they're already judged. That's what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. If that's all true then, the next question is judged unto what? What is this judgment? And and I just, I give you a quick I love this. This is a, a, an Ashley story. Ashley's, for those of you who don't know, Ashley's one of our daughters. She's almost 17. And we were ha- having a conversation about something, you know, that she wanted to do. And I said, well, you can't do that. And she said, well, I want to. And I said, well, you can't. Well, what if I do? I said, if you do, you know, there'll be, a, there'll be some, some consequences. And you could see her wheels turning. And her next question was, tell me about the consequences. <laughs> because she's honest. If, you know, Ashley is very honest. She's like, okay, maybe I want to do it anyway. You know, and I'm thinking, all right, I've got to ratchet up the consequences a little bit. But the point is that, that if you're judged, but you've not yet experienced judgment, you might want to have that conversation, right? You might want to think, well, I don't know exactly what it means to, to have this Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I'm not that dissatisfied with my life right now. Tell me about, you know, what's hanging in the balance. What does judgment look like? And, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. So, John chapter 3 again, this time verse 36, and for those of you NASB disciples, I actually chose the NIV to read this from because the New American Standard uses the word obey in the place that the NIV uses the word rejects. If you read the footnotes in the NIV, it references that that it has a, a function of obedience. But I, I think that for our conversation right now, thinking in terms of reject versus obey or disobey will be better. So uh, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And that's what Jesus said in, in the 3.16 through 18 verses. They've rejected him. And, and they don't have eternal life, but what they have is the wrath of God. So when you, somebody, if you're going to say, hey, listen, do you want to be saved? And somebody would say, saved from what? Hell is okay, but it's not the best answer. The best answer is for the eternal wrath of God. Because hell or the lake of fire ultimately is just where you experience the eternal wrath of God. The issue of your existence is the wrath of God poured out because of your sin. Romans 1, 18 through 23 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, the world, are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I wanted you to see that because it has the words, the wrath of God, and it also has the words that, that people would say, well, hey, I'm not, I can't be held accountable because I didn't know. It's like, no, no, they did know. I did know. Everybody knows. God has made the economy, the world, such that I don't know exactly how it works, but no one will stand before him and say, I'm innocent because I didn't know the law. They're accountable to God because he's made them aware of it. And when they're choosing, they, they're not being led like a dog to his instincts. They're, they're a person making a choice to deny God in their sin. Let me reinforce that a little bit more. Romans chapter 2 now, verses 14 through 16. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, now that's the Mosaic law, right? The Mosaic law was given to Israel, not to the Gentiles. So that's the law that he's talking about here. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So this reinforces earlier in Romans, God has made it such that he's written his moral law on the hearts of all people. And, and when we go about life and we do something that's contrary, we sin, our conscience will bother us. Now, if, if you continue to read in Romans, he, he shows us that there can come a point where in that law-breaking, in that choice of lawlessness, we can become so ourselves as God, so prideful, that the grace that he puts on person that, that manifests itself as conscience, he'll take it away. And he'll give you over to your reprobate mind. That there is a place that a person could come to where their conscience doesn't sear them anymore based upon their behaviors. And, man, it seems like you can see that so much, even like, you know, in the famous world today, where people are so convinced of a lifestyle or who knows what, and it's righteousness and it's goodness and their place in it that they, you can't even communicate with them. Because their conscience has been seared. It is scary. It's really scary. So God is telling the world through the church, through his word, through the church, that they're under judgment right now. And there's an opportunity while the time exists to come out from under judgment being judged so that they don't have to experience ultimate judgment eternally. So what does ultimate judgment look like? Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15. And, and this is why this was a hard message. This is stuff we know, but it's, it's like it's in bits and pieces. And, and, and it's kind of tricky to just pull it all together into a 30-minute you know, or a 40-minute message. But you're going to get the good flavor of it. Um, starting in verse 10, Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This specific 
is speaking of the devil. But the eternal torment that the devil receives is the same eternal torment that everyone will, leave, will receive. Anyone who has not chosen Jesus. Tormented day and night forever and ever. Goes on. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The reason I included the, the previous verses about Satan in the lake of fire is that there are some people that teach that at the end of time, when all of this is transpiring, that people will cease to exist. Those that denied Jesus, those that rebelled against God, their punishment will be to burn up and to cease to exist. But that's not what it'll be. Just like it says here for Satan, for every person who has died outside of the saving grace that's in Jesus Christ, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All of mankind is judged in their sin. Ultimately, all of that will be judged together. If they're in hell today, when the end of times comes, after Jesus reigns over the earth for a thousand years, all of this, the sea will give up its, up its dead, you know, Hades will give up its dead, all of that, which is found in, in the Lamb's book of, not found in the Lamb's book of life, will then ultimately be cast into the lake of fire for this eternal day and night never-ending torment. God is just, and justice demands accountability to sin. That accountability is the eternal wrath of God, which is eternal torment, ultimately eternal torment in the lake of fire. Revelation, um, I read you that one already. The thing, I mean, hell, lake of fire, separation, it's all separation from God. Any goodness in the world is only by God's grace. So when God removes himself from that, it can only be horrible. And the thing that's most scary to me about eternal judgment is it's eternal. It's not like you're going to die and, and then just cease to exist. You will be, you, not you, you know, a person will be in this state of torment forever. That clock never stops. The, the, I believe that the, the magnitude of the wrath of God that's poured on them, that they'll have to drink from that cup, is commensurate with the magnitude of their sin. So there will be people, and the one who's in the best shape in, in the lake of fire is going to wish that they could cease to exist. It's going to be beyond horrible, but it'll be less horrible than others' level of the wrath of God that they're going to have to experience. The thing that's so scary about it is it's hopeless. Right now, you could say, you know what? I'm just going to live how I want. I'm going to serve my flesh day and night. And then I'm going to come and see this Jesus, and then I'll repent and change my life. And you can have hope. Now, you may not be guaranteed that you're ever going to see that day, but you have hope. 
no matter how bad you are, when someone is presented the gospel, they say, oh, you know, can't, can't be me. I'm too bad. It's like, no, you're not too bad. That Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf, and you're not too bad. You can be saved. But once you pass, once you cross that line, once the race is finished, and you're found and not been on the narrow path, but on the wide path, that your faith wasn't placed in Jesus, and you are sent to judgment, there's no hope. There's no, oh my gosh, I really didn't understand it so good. Yes, you did, because God made it apparent to you. Okay, I'm ready to repent. I will repent. You know, how many of these do I have to do? How many wax do I have to take? It's like, no, you can't. It's, it's not available to you anymore. That's why it's so important. The day is coming when God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And if we don't present the gospel to people, the gospel, the one that actually has the power to save, they could end up in this situation. And they will be accountable for their sin. The fact they didn't hear the gospel won't make them unaccountable for their sin. But if we had the opportunity to share it and we didn't, we're going to have to give an account to the Lord why he gave us his word. He commissioned us onto this job that he's given us. He said, and lo, I will be with you always. And we didn't do it. Let me read to you now from, again, from Romans chapter five, this time verses eight through through 10. And, And we start to introduce the gospel right here. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much, much more having been reconciled, will be, we be saved by his life. So see here now the gospel is being introduced. We were God's enemies. We decided to be his enemies. And even while we were his enemies, uh, rebelling against him, doing all these things that the Bible tells us are so horrible, and knowing it, in our inner knowing, he still chose to send his son that we might be saved through him. And when it says saved by his life, it's by his resurrected life. That's how we know it's available to us, that that we are dead in our sin, and the fact that Jesus was resurrected after having been made sin on our behalf, right? Um, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, right at the end, says, And he who knew no sin, Jesus, he who knew no sin, he was perfect and blameless before God, was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteous, the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not been entered or which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Remember the relationship from last week? It's a love relationship. So when somebody says, uh, if God could, you know, if we could look and we could see somebody is actually saved, that the, the Holy Spirit is inside them, they're indwelt by the Spirit, they're born again, we can say they love God. But if they don't, we can say they don't love God. And, and, and heaven, this thing that our mind can't even begin to comprehend our hearts can't even imagine it how incredible it is god is prepared for those that love him so if we understand a little bit about the wrath we should understand a little bit about the other side of the equation because it's a carrot and a stick kind of a thing what's the carrot 
living in the eternal presence of God where his glory is uninhibited. In our corrupted, sinful bodies today, if God were to allow us into the presence of his glory full on, we would die because we're broken. But in eternity, we're going to get a resurrected body that can't ever experience pain. It will never be sick. It'll never be broken. It is not corrupted by sin. And we will be able to actually experience the full-on glory of God. And think about this. Think about in Revelation, the scene, and in Isaiah chapter 6, I think, the scene where here's these giant angel things, right? They got six wings. They're created beings. They've been their whole existence in the throne room. They can't even, they can't even uncover their eyes because God's glory is so overwhelming to them. And all they do is scream out day and night, night and day for all of eternity. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the whole earth or Holy, holy, holy. I forget exactly the words. But the point is, God's glory is so overwhelming that that's all they can do. And we're going to get to experience that. I think the heaven of heaven, like, you know, the heaven part of heaven is going to be God's glory. Totally uninhibited that we get to experience. And when we say, oh, you know, I'm going to worship God forever, it might seem kind of boring because we, you know, we only don't really understand worship so much. But when you're in God's glory, it's the only thing that can happen. I mean, you're just screaming out, God, holy, holy, you're awesome. Oh, my gosh, oh, I can't take it. It's so good. That's the heaven of heaven. I'm spring. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among, among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, mourning like sadness mourning, or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So as we get prepared to present to someone the gospel and then ultimately the way that a person should respond to the gospel if they want to take advantage of the grace that God's offered them, they have to, ask, they have to be asked the question. Do they want to continue in rebellion against God? Or do they desire reconciliation with him? On one side, if you choose this life, you, you get to have this wrath of God ultimately. If you choose that life, we don't know it yet because we haven't gotten there, but you have to surrender this life, but you get that eternally in the glory of God. But it's a decision. Essentially, which relationship do you want to live under with God? The law of sin and death? or the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? That, that's the question that people are being asked. All the rest is consequence. We haven't gotten to the gospel yet, the how part of it, that somebody could actually respond and say. And some people will say, nope, I choose this life. I mean, I, I've seen people. It's like, I'm going to enjoy my life now, and I'll take what comes later. It's like, okay, I've done a poor job of explaining to you what you just said, because you would not say that if you had any true concept of what it means to be eternally separate from God. I'm done. <laughs> I look at my notes and I'm at the end. I nothing more to come out of there. <laughs> no, nope. I would like to pray over you. And then if anybody needs prayer, would you please come up and get prayer? And and even if you don't come up and get prayer, get somebody to pray over you and then pray over them. Just start getting in the habit of praying over one another. Pray the things that are most 
like if, if you came up to me and said, pray for me, and I said, what do you want me to pray for? You'd say, just pray whatever you want. I would pray that you would have such deep intimacy with God, that, that you would hear his voice so clearly, and that, that you would just know him in ways that you couldn't even imagine to know him. You just pray the passion of your own heart with the Lord over somebody else. And let's get in the habit of just building each other up in prayer, interceding on behalf. of Not just, man, I got the flu and I can't shake this thing. That's an awesome thing to get prayed for. But let's just start praying for greater and more awesome things of that God's going to use us and his power is going to flow through us and we're going to be so full of his love that it's just going to overwhelm every person that we see. Prayers like that. So, Father, that's my prayer for right now. I will pray over this congregation that which I ask you for just on a regular basis, that each and every one of us, Lord, would have such intimacy with you that we would not walk by our own compass but by your compass that the that the directions that would be we would follow would be the directions that you give us that that we would find these appointments that bill and joan are finding that we would find these appointments that pick is finding that we would be attentive always to your voice and that we would know that we will hear your voice thank you king jesus just pray for intimacy pray for surrender lord pray for a passion to know your word a passion to rightly divide it and then a passion to share it with this lost world, and then one another, Lord, that we might be built up in your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name.